0: I want to tell you what this episode is and then share with you why it is a uniquely important episode. So just like most of the other episodes, this is an episode of somebody sharing the ways that they have experienced wounds or trauma and what healing looks like or could look like in that space. Now, with the other stories that we've heard, it's been pretty easy for anyone to turn on the episode, let it play through, and then appreciate and value the guest's experience. What's uniquely different about this story is that the wounds that Ebony shares about are ones that are not always listened to, that are not always received with dignity, and are not always honored. That's because the wounds that she's going to explore are on a topic that many don't want to talk about. I started this episode thinking that it would be about something else altogether, generational wounds, and I had no other agenda outside it. I wanted to follow God's invitation, and I went in ready for whatever he might bring. Midway through the conversation, I realized God wanted to do something very different. He wanted to press us into the idea that true holistic healing necessitates us staying at the table. In other words, there are many things that Ebony will share that some people might find difficult to hear, that some people might not want to hear, that may make some people want to turn off the episode or disregard the entire podcast as a whole. The invitation, The challenge is this. I've already shared that I had no other agenda than to follow God's prompting. And who you are gonna listen to is my friend, Ebony, sharing her experience. And if what she shares is challenging, you have an opportunity to choose to stay at the table, to recognize her humanity, to listen with dignity, and to honor her experience. Staying at the table can be hard, but God never promised that healing would be easy. You're listening to episode 77 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I just want to thank you that you are God and you are good and I just want to thank you that you are a good shepherd that you guide us that you lead us to places that we might not have gone i thank you for ebony i thank you that you already crossed our paths and we already have a deep appreciation for each other and enjoy talking to each other but i also have a sense that there's something you want to do in this conversation we just want to release it to you we just want to invite you to speak for you to guide our words that if there's anything that we should say, that we should sit with, that we would be ready to trust you in that. If there's anything that we shouldn't, that we would release that to you. But yeah, ultimately, this is your conversation, and we want you to be glorified. And so we give it all to you. I was in holy name. Amen. Mm-hmm. So Ebony, I can't even remember how long we've known each other. We've connected organically many times. I used to do a series called Front Portion, and you were in one of those episodes. But generally, I just appreciate you as a person, especially the last few months. You know, we'll talk more about that in a minute, but uh, the project you've been working on and just knowing how hard you've worked on it. But before we get into that, one thing that I've started to do with my episodes, and at some point I'm going to regret doing it, is I want to create a fun way for someone to just share briefly about who they are. But the challenge I give myself is to not plan in advance <laughs> what question I'm going to ask, oh, what fun prompt I put out there. I don't actually have one yet. So the closest I have is this. All right. There's this marketing team that is trying to brand their product to a new demographic, right? And sometimes the way they do that is they create these avatars, these characters, and they say, all right, this is the person that's gonna represent. So they've just created the ebony avatar. This is who they're gonna use to send their new product into the world and to design around it. So it's got its quick hit description, What does that description say about the ebony avatar? (laughs) I don't know.
1: The ebony avatar, I would say a force, uh, confident, visionary, wise, and at the intersection of race and place.
0: I love it. That's good. (laughs) So out the gate, one thing that I want to touch on now, and and you and I mentioned this before we started recording, you just mentioned the intersection of race and place. And one thing I shared is that, you know, we're in a time now where even using the word race can be a red flag for people. And so I want to put a challenge now out to anyone who might be listening that that might be where they are for whatever reasons, the concept, the idea of an episode that talks about race, raises flags, seems concerning. I want to, I want to challenge folks to, to stay at the table. Mm-hmm. And so I just want to put that out there because I don't want somebody to leave simply because of that, when God may actually have something powerful for them. Absolutely. So the reason that we're talking is you recently were working on a project. And as I was watching a presentation of this, I felt this nudge that I should reach out to you. And specifically this idea of generational wounds came to mind because it's so relevant to what you've been navigating. Uh, Tell me a little bit about this project.
1: Absolutely. Yes. And thank you, uh, Paul, for having me on. We've intersected at a number of different vantage points. So happy to chat with you again. It's been a while. So Mm -hmm. I want to say thank you, and it's a pleasure. So I'm Ebony Walden, the creative curator of what I call the Richmond Racial Equity Essays. So the, the essays are a multimedia project focused on advancing racial equity, specifically in Richmond. It really came about a number of different ways, but the short version is I'm an urban planner and I do lots of DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion work in the city and in Central Virginia and around the country in some other cases. And I'm always in, in rooms where we're talking about racial equity, we're talking about racial justice and injustice. And so people are talking about it or around it. Whatever you think about what's gone on in the past, you know, 18 months since the pandemic, the murder of George Floyd, the protest, the monuments down, there is a new awakening and understanding of, hey, we still have some really deep issues around this that we need to do something about, right? And Mm -hmm. so my thing was the monuments are down or they're coming down, now what? How can we really vision a new city? Essentially the essays I asked 50 people from all walks of life, sectors, different vantage points in Richmond, what was their vision for racial equity and how did we get there? Because I wanted to, this is a word, not a real word, but my friend uses it and I love it, concretize. What does racial injustice look like in our city? But also get people that are actually doing the work. They're out here running organizations either at the advocacy, activist, or grassroots level, doing the work of justice. And so I wanted to ask them, what's their vision and how do we get there? And so those kind of 50 conversations manifested in an ebook, where we have 24 essays by 27 essayists. We have an eight-episode podcasts, where I interviewed about 15 people. And then we did a seven video interviews where I interviewed a number of folks and asked them essentially the same question. And I wanted concrete, what are the injustices you see? Why are you in this work? What's your vision for how our city can change? And how do we get there? I wanted to get concrete solutions for the people that have been doing it for a while, that are new, that are out there on the ground doing the work from vantage points. So we have urban planners, We have Danny Avula, who's the head of the health department. We have folks working at the city and parks. We have environmentalists. We have educators, folks that are doing arts and culture work, all different types of people answering that question And the hopes was hey, can we create a framework for what racial equity looks like in Richmond? And Richmond is the capital of the Confederacy. And if you know anything about race, Virginia is where the ideas around race were codified into law. And so I think Richmond in particular and Virginia have something perhaps we can teach the rest of the nation. I think that we can get it right here. We can be the capital of racial equity we can hopefully be a model for other cities. So I wanted this conversation where it wasn't just the big wigs or the folks at think tanks that are trying to find solutions, it was everyday people doing the work. And then hopefully collectively that could create a framework for our city, the many legs and tentacles of the work, but concrete mm-hmm. solutions.
0: Yeah. And one thing I really loved about your project, one, it was multifaceted. And so it taps into different ways of addressing and engaging and navigating what is a very big and nuanced topic but you also don't just hit on information and data but it really is focused on voices you know the videos that you did you know don coleman was one of them and he hasn't been on this podcast yet but one day he will be but i talk about him a lot out the gate he's sharing personal stories of when he was a kid, what, what it looked like? And how did he navigate different situations? Carolyn Lofton has been on the podcast and she shares her personal stories. And what I love about that is it's so, 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 so easy for us with these big, heavy topics to remove the humanity out of it, to just see our points and opposing points and treat people based on those rather than There's people that have experienced things that are continuing to experience things and have feelings about that, have thoughts about that, have ideas about that. So how is it we create these spaces to hear, to honor these ideas and then to respond accordingly. And so I feel like your project did a beautiful job of that. And especially being multifaceted, it allows things to hit in different ways. But what's hard is regardless of what someone thinks about the topic of race, The reality is, is that it is still something that is a relevant topic. This has been an ongoing conversation. And so even if someone would stand up and say race isn't an issue, there are still millions of people who are being impacted by this topic, who are still having to navigate this topic. And so I I feel like there's a lot we could talk about, but I do want to first hit on this idea of when we say generational wounds like we're talking about something that has had hundreds of years of impact and what somebody could say is well when it comes to race slavery is not an issue anymore this isn't an issue anymore this isn't an issue anymore so why are we making this an issue still so when you think of this idea of generational wounds not just as a term but as something that you are navigating so much that you had to create a project that addresses this what what does it make you think about? How do you process that idea?
1: Two things come to my mind. First is just like from a psychological, like family perspective is when you first talked about generational wounds. That's what comes to mind. And I think that you can think of it like that. So my friend always says, like, you know, Black folks and white folks, at least in this country, it seems like a bad marriage, right? <laughs> we're, we're, we're stuck in this thing together. We haven't really quite got our relationship right. And I think that if you think about us as people, if you think about how from a counseling therapy standpoint, how the first 18 years, you actually may spend the rest of your life healing from the first 18 years mm-hmm. of your life. Um, and how, like, we may spend perhaps the rest of our time working in America, healing from the first 400 years that have solidified the grounding in our nation. That, that soil. Right. My gata was in town, and he's eight, and we were kind of walking, and he was like seeing Confederate flags, and in his and mind, he was like, "Oh man, what's happening? Where am I?" And then I was, we were at the VMFA, I was I was telling him about the history of it. And then there was this kind of placard that said, you know, folks used to own enslaved persons on this site. And he was like, oh my gosh, we have to go. Like, we can't be here. This is not good or right. And in my mind, I think, can you name a place in this country where you can go to that was not impacted by slavery or oppression in some way, shape, or 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 the vestiges in the legacy? of that and i think that we have to contend with the reality that our country was built on land that was taken out of the possession of a people that existed here and lived here before and was built on stolen labor right and the vestiges of that are not only just in our dna right like the, the oppression still lives on in our dna But it's mirrored in the very stratification of our society, right? When I go out, who are those essential workers doing labor everywhere? If you go from the bus to the post office Mm. to in our medical field, who are the people that are consistently at the bottom doing the work? And of course, we have a number of Black and brown and folks of color in leadership. But by and large, our country from a leadership who owns the resources from a who's at the top, this I mean, it's still a stratification of a plantation, right? So, of course, we have some success. It's not like all or nothing. We're not where we were 150 years ago. We're not saying that. I'm saying that from everything from birth to death, from birth to death and everything in between almost that you can measure, health, wealth, income, life expectancy. So, from where I live in Richmond- to some neighborhoods in the West End, roughly three or four miles, there is a 20-year difference in life expectancy, right? Mm -hmm. And that's totally based on race and zip code. So we can't deny that the reality of our society is still stratified based on race and that who has opportunities and who doesn't, who is going to fare well in life and who doesn't, and race is still an important factor in that. And those things are not, it's like not a surprise. And so you you kind of have two responses to the statistics that you see, right, from birth to death. So as a black woman, regardless of income, regardless of educational attainment, I am three to four times more likely to die in childbirth, right? And you can see that some of the richest, most powerful, most famous women in our country, Serena Williams and Beyonce had some almost deadly complications in childbirth, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not about just income. It's about something about Black skin, right? That the reaction to it is not opportunity. It's not giving you the same level of service. There's a lot of bias. But my point is to say there are real disparities in numbers and experience in our country. And you have two responses to that. You either blame the people, like there's something wrong with Black people, which in my mind is an inherently racist idea. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with any group of people. Or you take on the notion that there is something wrong with the system. And I like to take a groundware approach to my work, right? So that means there, if there's a pond, you know how fish flop over when they're dying? Two or three flop over, you're like, okay, maybe the fish, something's wrong with the fish. If 30, 50%, a vast percentage of the fish start flopping over, then you start asking different questions like, what is wrong with this pond ecosystem that is creating these results, right? So you ask yourself, what is wrong with the system and what's going on in the soil? Like, what's the history of this site? Like, was there pollution dumped here? How did the soil get made? What's the water? source? you you start asking completely different questions, right? And so when you take a system approach, you say, what has gone on in the history of our country to create these systems and structures that consistently, consistently produce disparities between white folks and black and brown folks. And then you begin, you're like, oh, well, if you understand that what we're dealing with is the cumulative and compounding history and legacy. It's the idea that black people are inferior. Slavery was just one manifestation of that, right? And then we had Jim Crow Crow's another manifestation of that. And by virtue, they're not gonna get access to X, Y, and Z. And we have laws... Redlining. Hey, Black people can't get federal loans and live in in these neighborhoods and have access to to resources. And that still happens. Mm -hmm. Assessments, right? A good friend of ours is like over 700 credit score. Both husband and wife have good jobs. Why are they not getting approved for a refinancing? Even the bank doesn't know, we don't know. Okay, because you're using old algorithms and when you use old algorithms that they're gonna push out black people because those were the people that by law and statute and structure that banks didn't wanna lend to, right? So I think the vestiges of that, right? There's a Netflix show called Coded Bias You know, for computers to be intelligent, they have to use the data that we've used in past to begin to make decisions about the future. But what do we know about our past is it's been very discriminatory and biased against people of color. So when you use those algorithms and that's all history, right? Use those algorithms to make current day decisions you get two Black people, there's are on their second home, they're financially secure, they have top credit scores, they're not getting refinanced, probably because they live in a neighborhood that's been traditionally mostly Black, right? And we're using dated algorithms to make current decisions, mm-hmm. right? And so those are kind of the vestiges that keep, right? The idea that Black folks are inferior, right? And they don't, they're not whatever, they're not smart enough, they're not good enough, they have a high pain tolerance. They're criminal. All of those things are ideas that were formed and almost honed over the course of our history that come up, and then sometimes we don't even know where we get them from. And Black folks aren't immune from that because it's in the air—the things we read, movies, and TV. Has somebody come from a foreign country and then try to interact with a Black person? Right? They're going to be scared because all of they've seen is a bunch of propaganda about who we are. Right? And and that didn't start. Five years ago, it didn't start 50 years ago. It didn't even start 100 years ago. Those same ideas have morphed over time. So if we understand that history, if you understand even your family history, right? What's the first thing that they ask you when you go to the doctor, right? Is there a family history of X, Y, and Z, right? It's the same thing. Mm -hmm. Those things are manifesting you. It's not saying that we did anything to create this system, right? No white person or black person that's living today is responsible for these things, right? But we are responsible for trying to fix our community, our nation, and trying to heal these things. And so I encourage people to just It's not about blame. It's about taking responsibility, right? I have a responsibility, whether I created it or not, to create a just society for, for everybody, regardless of how they look. Stop throwing around blame and then taking responsibility for creating the nation that we actually want to see. Yeah.
0: You just shared a lot of information and you scratched the surface on what you could have shared, right? This is what I think is really important is there are so many objective things like the data you mentioned about life expectancy. That's actual objective data that in this area, life is this long and then three miles away, 20 plus years longer. You can dive into all the reasons why and this and the other, but there is a real thing there. Our friend that was not able to refinance the loan I would think that there'd be a lot of people that would just assume that that would never happen, but it did happen to her. We have these objective things, things that we can look at and say, this isn't good, this shouldn't happen, and we should fix this. But the other piece that you really hit on is really just tapping into the idea of trauma and long-term trauma it's common for us to look at somebody in a hard situation and then to think when they're out of that hard situation or when things aren't as bad that things are good now but that's not how trauma works Mm -hmm. you know one way to define generational trauma is a traumatic event that began decades prior to the current generation and has impacted the way that individuals understand cope with and heal from trauma and what i like about that is it dives way beyond just fixing the problem Mm -hmm. to addressing trauma impacts understanding trauma impacts how you cope and trauma impacts not just how you heal but what you're even healing from so here's a big question that's sitting on my mind you just downloaded generations worth of things that we have seen and experienced both objective and experiential you have just shared about this project that you've created in 2021 And you also know that your project didn't end racism or bring total racial equity. So my question is this, obviously we're speaking into your context, but even beyond that, what do we do when there are these generational wounds and they aren't fixed? How do you continue to move forward if, you know, and I think of Martin Luther King Jr. He shared a lot with a forward mindset of knowing that the things he was longing for, the dream he had, he might not get to see and he didn't get to see. So how in the world do we find healing when it seems like the wounds are gonna continue? How does God bring about healing? Is he bringing about healing when stuff continues to be perpetuated?
1: Yeah, so I think that what I wanted to highlight what you said about trauma really is, you know, when you're healing, you gotta address the root cause, right? And that's really why we're rethinking history we're really trying to understand from assistance of approach how did we get here? There is an African term, Sankofa, and it's basically you got to go back and get it, right? So you can't kind of go on to the future unless you go back and get and understand your past, right? And that's kind of trauma. You can't just be like, get over
0: it, mm-hmm.
1: right? And so two things that I think that we can learn from that is you have to go back and get it. You have to go back, look, see, analyze what was that situation, what was happening how was I injured, impacted? Like, how did that impact leave? Physically, emotionally? I mean, there's so many, the ripple effects of trauma. It could be a whole life. Financially, in the same thing, going back and get it and really, really learn, right? And one of my goals was to, which I stopped because I was like, this is depressing, but was to read like 24 books that really deepen my understanding of the insidiousness of race and racism and the ways in which it manifests, right? Because we have to be really sophisticated because I think it's like an ugly monster where you're like, all right, slavery is over. Jim Crow comes up, right? I mean, that's over. Then we have the prison industry. So it just like sneaky and wants to Because if you don't go back, you don't clean out the wound, you don't understand the context, the ideas, the philosophies, the ways of being that have got us to this place, you're just going to perpetuate them. And so what I like to say from like racial healing standpoint, the healing that we need to do at the individual levels, both Black folks... People of color and white folks, because we've all been impacted by this, right? And so there's this internalized things, whether it's internalized inferiority by people of color or internalized superiority or privilege. The people that really say that race isn't the issue, because race isn't the issue for them right? There's very few pl- Black folks, even though they do exist, the same race isn't an issue, right? Because for white folks, it isn't an issue for them, because you can walk through your world, you're not impacted by it, by and large, It just like you are, but like, it doesn't necessarily impact your everyday experience. I never move through the world and not think about being a Black woman, right? I just don't. Whether that's part of my perception, that's part of the way I move the world, I have to think about that, of like every interaction I'm having. Is it because I'm a Black, like all of this is like, okay, I don't know what to attribute these things to, right? The way I move through the world, the way I'm perceived, the way I talk, and always hyper aware of those things. I think white people don't necessarily have that awareness, so they think race is an issue because it's not an issue for them, but there's also healing that needs to take place and realization and understanding about how they are impacted by race, but they just need to open up their understanding in their eyes and realization to it. And maybe in the ways in which they've been shielded from the reality of race and racism and the way it manifests in this country, right? You know, I do trainings where I live in. England, and then I was talking to this guy, we're talking about race and these concepts. And he was like, oh, you know, I never really thought about that. There's only one black person in in my school. Like, right, he never thought about race because it wasn't a part of what he needed to do. But for people of color, it's everything a part of what we need to do. And so I think that there's just a schism of experience and that is both the personal, interpersonal work and healing that needs to happen, right? So I, there are things from a racial perspective that I've internalized as a black person, as a black woman that I need to kind of dissect and really look at, right? And become aware of so I can heal from them so I can navigate the world in different ways, right? And I think that that's the same for white folks same for other folks of color, too. Awareness is everything. You cannot solve a problem that is not in your awareness, right? You can not heal a wound that you don't uncover, dig out, and take out all of the debris and give it some air so it's to heal. And so my thing is we need to give it some air from uh, what is the history in our society, right, What's going on, what has happened in our personal and interpersonal life. There's something one of my clients do. It's called the Racial Healing Handbook. And it's really processing your experiences and interactions around race, right? And how these big kind of concepts impact your life. And that was so important to the racial equity essays. I said, you can do facts and stats, but ground this in your personal experience. Who are you and why you're talking about this? And how have these issues impacted you personally? Because nobody can refute your story. And that's what we need to hear is stories around these things. These are not some far up ideas. It's those people over there. No, it's me right here, my neighbor, my person. And it's 25 people. That's the first thing I ask, what's a pivotal moment in your life that has brought you this and that sharing of stories. And I think it needs to happen between people of color in their own groups. So Black folks and Latinx folks are kind of need to get and say, I need to have a space where I can process this. And white folks that can do that too, of like, how have these things impacted me? And then after we've done our healing or in somewhere in the process, it doesn't have to be linear, we can come and do those things together. Because I think if we don't do our own work, then we end up coming together prematurely and hurting each other, right? Because we either don't have the space to hold someone's perspective that is completely different from mine, right? Or we end up inflicting harm. So I think from an interpersonal and personal perspective, that healing, go back and get it. What have been my experience? How can I increase my understanding, not only of history, but my own history with these issues? I teach a class on DEI in the city. In the first class, I asked folks to say, we can learn about cities and diversity, equity, inclusion all over the world, but what is your experience? What kind of community did you grow in? What was the racial and demographic background of the people you lived in? Because that is a profound resource, right? But also a profound blinders because that community kind of shapes your view of other communities. So let's dissect and analyze your experience of these issues or lack of experience of these issues, right? So how do you do that? I think from an institutional standpoint, whether you work at a nonprofit, you work in the church, how has the church been complicit in racial injustice? past, present, and future, right? The conceptualization of race, and and in some ways, the oppression of folks of color was inflicted through the Bible, right? And so those things are interconnected in this country, right? To be a good slave and subservient, right? And so those kind of things. So I think that we need to kind of dig those up, not only from the past and say, what in what ways are the ideas, the vestiges of the past still manifested here in our leadership, in our structure, in our budget? How are those tentacles and stratifications still present? How do we talk about that, reveal that, and begin to disrupt and heal it? And then the same thing, larger society across institutions. What are the ways in which these problematic ideas about race, about people, who deserves access who deserves to be safe, who communities deserve to be invested in, these societal wounds, how can those be exposed? And so I think that what's hard for some people is the hurt that has gone on for generations has been exposed. And it's actually, instead of facing that, trauma is a, trauma's a, a, a hard thing to face for anybody, personal trauma, societal trauma, right? The first thing we do is try to bury it or run away from it just people, right? If I can get through this without addressing it and be in denial about it, we don't tend to change until there's a a moment of crisis. And I think last summer was a moment of crisis where we like, okay, now we got to change. But we still, we have to do these steps of like acknowledging, see how it manifested in our past and present and future, bring it to light and then begin to disrupt it, right? In therapy or counseling, you become aware of your patterns that are unhealthy and dysfunctional. That's the first part, right? And then you may do some family work to say, well, where did these things come from and how did I operate like this? And then you begin to step back and say, oh, I realize this is a dysfunctional pattern now. I have the space to begin to disrupt it. And I think if we're doing that on all three of those levels, then we can begin to heal as a nation from this. 400 years of trauma that we've inherited
0: there's so much that was bringing up in my mind as you were talking so one you know i really appreciate you sharing the idea of the value that can come from someone being able to stop and step back and say why is it that i'm feeling the way i'm feeling what has impacted me and kind of to validate your experience and your story and it it made me think of the netflix show made but a really powerful show that focuses on a woman's journey navigating domestic abuse. And part of her journey was not just coming to recognize where she was internally and externally, but then being able to accept what happened to get her there, who played a role in that, but really even getting value to herself because there's a part of her that felt like, it was her fault, or she deserved it. or really? So Like there is that piece. And there's a lot of value to being able to do introspection, to be able to learn how to find contentment and healing that isn't contingent on external circumstances. But the question that I asked before this, somebody could take that as a, a dismissive kind of a thing. Like, well, if racism never ends, how can people just learn to deal with it? What you've shared is that's not a very good way of approaching it because the reality is when we're looking at any kind of trauma there is an internal component but there is an external component Mm -hmm. and if you want to find true holistic healing communal healing it has to expand beyond the individual to communal and here's what it specifically brought up to my mind because You know, you and I talked before this and I shared that the reason we're having this conversation is because I felt like a nudge from God, but I didn't know where the conversation was going to go. One thing I did know, and I named it in the disclaimer at the start, is that there would be many people who might be uncomfortable with this conversation and many people who may actually like shut it down. And, And I thought about it again as you started to share specific things. I was thinking of specific people. I'm like, ah. Now that she said that word, I might have lost them. And this is what really struck me. I want to give credit to anybody who has made it this far, <laughs> who normally wouldn't have, right? Cause there are people that are like, oh, I love Ebony or like, yes, we need to fight for racial equity. Like there are people that are going to make it this far, but there are going to be other people that wouldn't have normally made it this far, but they took my challenge of staying at the table and here they are. And this is why I want to affirm that person because they're doing something that we often as people are so unwilling to do and that is to be willing to press into these traumatic spaces with an understanding of the humanity of others an understanding of everyone being made in the image of god because there are going to be people who may immediately decide that you are simply an embodiment of the racial conversation and if they don't want that they're shutting it down that's not who you are you're ebony walden You're my friend that I've invited to my podcast. And if somebody listening shuts it down, they're not shutting down the concept of talking about race. They're shutting down my friend, Ebony, who is sharing her story and her experience and her ideas and her opinions and her hopes and her dreams. And even if somebody disagrees with what you say, even if somebody believes the opposite of what you say, they still have to make a decision of whether they are willing to interact with you to dismiss you Mm -hmm. and this is i think what we see definitely in the racial conversation but in everyday life when we're navigating the messiness of people trying to interact with each other and trauma happening is we constantly are faced with the decision of am i willing to actually engage with this person or am i choosing to dismiss this person the fact that there may be someone who didn't want to listen to a conversation about race has chosen to sit this long they are doing a healing act, even if it doesn't feel like it or not, even if it doesn't produce global change or not. Because that's the communal piece is choosing to stay at the table, not because you want to not because you like what's being said, but because you're affirming the dignity of the person across the table from you.
1: Yeah. I have two things to say. Healing is not fun sometimes, Mm -hmm. right? And so I was reading through something and sort of emotions are kind of like, you got to go through the tunnel in order to get through the light. And I think it is really hard to have your worldview. And you will know this from a spiritual transformation perspective. And God does it all the time because he wants to, I'm doing a new thing. Do you perceive it? And sometimes You know, in order to be open to the new thing, we have to let go of the ways in which we have thought and are being in the world. And that is a profoundly hard thing. It is a loss, right, that the world has worked for me, and I think it works for everybody. And with the understanding that it doesn't work for everybody in an equally way, like, that is really hard and profound things. You're not open to the conversation about race. That's fine, but I just wonder why. I would be curious about that. What's under that I think, too, I got him into his work, and I'll tell you this. So people think about race and racism as somebody calling a Black person the N-word, right? And so they're like, I don't do that. I don't call Black people N-words. I treat them the same. I'm colorblind. One, I don't want you to be colorblind. I like being Black. There's nothing wrong with being Black. I don't want to be discriminated against because I'm Black. I don't want to die three or four times more likely in childbirth because I'm Black, right? But I want you to see me just like you. A red rose is not a yellow rose, because God made those different, and it's completely fine. I think the last thing, too, I want to say is I got into this work, and this is in, in my essays. When I moved from Queens to Long Island, which is a profoundly segregated community, there was a community to the north of me and a community to the south of me. I lived in a primarily Black and Latino community, and the community to the north of me and to the south of me were primarily white. And I went from my community, which is fairly modest, but there were liquor stores and corner stores and not the best grocery stores and not the best shopping options. And instantly when I crossed into these jurisdictions that were just like these dividing lines, there were bigger houses, paved streets, nicer lawns, better shopping, which was different about the communities is that they were white. They were richer and whiter, right? And so that is everywhere USA. Where can you find a place where those racial dividing lines do not exist? You can tell who lives there, nobody even has to be outside. You just drive across Richmond and you can tell those communities. But those things were created by laws and policies and that's what systemic racism looks like. To me is that I drive from my community To other communities, and I see this racial difference written on the landscape. And I said, no, I want the norm to be thriving Black and brown communities in this nation. And I am not going to accept the thought that there's something inherently wrong with Black and brown people, that our communities are different. I meet with people all the time, and I don't think Black folks are inherently less hardworking or those kind of things. And so... So that's why I'm personally in this work because I see racial difference in every room that I go in, in every community that I drive through. I'm a city planner and I do work in lots of communities, but it's the same, it's everywhere USA. And the the racial equity essays, which I put together, those focus on what does that look like in Richmond? I mean, you could read those in anywhere in the USA and it'd be the same exact issues and problems. And I think that we have to see. That and my goal in life was to say, No, everyone deserves access equal access to parks, to resources, to nice shopping, to healthy food and grocery stores, to clean air and water, and all of those things. And my goal is to make communities where that is so. But in order to do that, we have to be okay with the reality it's not the way that we want it to be in order to see the issues so that we can then disrupt and solve for them. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And I appreciate you like just sharing the personal element. This is what was hitting me as you were talking. Let's say we weren't friends, but all I know about you is we were brothers and sisters in Christ. What I can know from what you shared is that this has impacted you and this matters to you. And it matters enough that you've invested the last few months in a hefty project, but you've also invested your vocational life, your day-to-day life, your walking down the street life into navigating this right the worst thing I could do to you is be dismissive to say you're wrong or to blame you or to throw things at you if I'm desiring to love as scripture calls me like that would not be the first response that I should navigate and it made me think of situations in my life where something traumatic happened and when I would get people ignoring it dismissing it blaming me for it saying well it's your fault that you didn't get out of it or you know all those kind of things it hits on a deep 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 level it's not just that i feel like i'm being rejected but it does an internal identity thing the way it's come up in a number of episodes is there are moments where i am like am i crazy right and then when you get to the healthy place of affirming okay no i'm not crazy that doesn't fix it either because there's still people that don't understand what i'm going through if we really want to see healing I've been pretty vocal on this podcast, but in my life about my feelings around the impact of race that I see around me. And, you know, we've already talked a little bit about it here. And so, but let's say that I was in the position of questioning if race was still an issue, even if I was in that situation right now at this moment, I would still have the opportunity if I claim to be a follower of Christ to decide whether I'm going to love or not, whether I'm going to affirm the Imago Day in you or not too often we're and especially people that look like me aren't willing to press into that first step if we're claiming to be a christian love is is the first thing that we're called to and we'll jump ahead to like the dismissal or the explaining or the trying to fix or correct but it's from that starting point where i can actually see and hear and understand you not try to fix you not try to argue with you but to actually recognize that you are a person sitting virtually <laughs> across from me and i again have to make a decision whether i want to love god and love others or love something else mm-hmm. you know it says seek first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and all these things will follow if i'm not willing to make that first step then i'm not actually going to bring about healing mm-hmm. yeah i i really appreciate your openness and your vulnerability and just the way that's playing out in your life but i want to challenge people to recognize. <laughs> There are big things that have to happen. I think we can look at the last 18 months of our nation and recognize our nation isn't perfect, (laughs) you know, at the very least, we could all agree that there are issues. There are big, big, big things ahead, things in systems, things in processes, things. in. there's just so many big things that have a lot of work and it can seem daunting. And that's what can scare some people. Like, I don't know how we even, is there any hope? Should we just like split up like that divorce mentality of this marriage isn't working? Maybe we should just divorce. Like, so I get that, that sometimes it gets seen too big, too far off. But there is another piece that God has actually given us access to as believers, even while the messiness still exists, that I, as someone who's white, have the opportunity to actually trust that God can love through me challenge me how to love and convict me of whatever false understandings i might have because we're all humans and have Mm -hmm. things that we don't understand what could happen if the church actually started living like that Mm -hmm. right church is still very segregated so what if all these bodies that are functioning as churches actually stepped into that new testament call of unity not we could be unified once this person says this and once this person stops saying that but all right, we're gonna choose to actually be a body of Christ. We have no idea how this is gonna work because we're still not getting along, but we're gonna actually choose that and then see what God does from there. Because what I think we will find is something more akin to the Acts church where, my goodness, even if on a national level, brokenness persisted in a lot of ways, what you saw in Acts is there is tremendous brokenness, tremendous prejudice, tremendous opposition to certain demographics of people. And yet somehow there is this body that began to thrive. And from that body thriving, that expanded beyond the body and began impacting towns and began impacting nations. You know, what could this nation look like if we actually learned what it looked like to love, not in the dismissive, let's get along kind of way, but in the authentic sacrificial, I'm gonna affirm your dignity. I'm gonna see the image of God in you, even though I disagree with you how could love actually make a different impact and i think it starts small like sitting at the table listening to stories yeah so i wanted to give you a space to respond to that and then i had two final questions
1: yeah so i totally agree which is why i i mean this is a project about solutions but it ends up being a storytelling project right and for those who particularly think race and racism is an issue what what came up to my mind is when Brian Stevenson is talking about you got to get proximate to the problem, you know, are you proximate to people whom that is an issue, right? And and mm-hmm. have you heard the fullness of their story? I mean, because just be, because you have black friends, it doesn't mean they have the uniform experience or that you've heard the fullness of the stories, right? Because we're adept in wearing the mask, right? And because it's part of our life and livelihood to try to fit in in some ways and, and to assimilate. But do you have people of color in your life that have taken off the mask and really kind of let you into their experience of moving through the world and some of the things that they have to pay attention to. And you don't even have to have people in your life. Do you read books? Mm-hmm. Have you listened to podcasts? Have you listened to, I do audio books now. There TED Talks are. is your life reading, uh, movie watching one in which you hear diverse perspectives that are uh, different from yours right and so I'm challenging folks even if you don't it's not like hey I want to go around and get black friends do you listen to black white latinx asian different stories right that that mm-hmm. will give you a different perspective on the world because we'll just be stuck in our own perspective and i think that that is a really easy entryway Mm -hmm. into, oh, I'm trying to enter into somebody's perspective and world that is very different from mine because that issue doesn't exist for me, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. But I think that when you love somebody for whom these things are issues, right, they become your issues, right? Because anytime we love somebody, we're invested in like, oh, this is injustice. I don't want this to happen to you. We get fired up, right? And so the question is, do you love, like literally love in intimate relationship with somebody for who these issues are issues and if not, there's an opportunity, invitation, as a whole, to like, oh, okay, how do I really become proximate so that I am impacted by things that I would normally be impacted but for things that I might? Because I mean, that's how you, these issues. You like people tell stories of like, hmm, this doesn't impact me, but this is this is a problem. How can I do something about it? Right? Is your heart broken for the ways in which people, black, white, anything, uh, experience this world differently? And if it isn't, how can your heart become broken and open to be broken? Because I think that when it is, then you care. There's so much going on in the world. It's so easy to be calloused. I mean, because yeah. you can't just take all the money. And so I think stories and being proximate and being in relationship is just the first step, right? So me and you in relationship are not, it's great for both of our transformation. It's probably not going to change the world, right? And so we have to have that perhaps as a start, but not as the ending, we all have work and in institutions that we're part of that can be our second step. And then what is the work that we might do to change the larger society? So it doesn't seem like this big overwhelming thing because what humans do when things are overwhelming, we just kind of do nothing. we're like, well, I'm going to go back and zone out because it's too much. So mm-hmm. get yeah. proximate.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate what you shared about how there may be people who proximity might be tricky. That's one of the beautiful things about your project is you're like, well, here, Here's a simple way to start to hear some of the stories as you figure out what extended in-person relationships can look like. So if somebody wanted to engage with the project, how can they find it?
1: Oh, absolutely. Go to com. Everything is there. And on the website, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the podcast is Racial Equity in Richmond. And you can find that where you find your podcast is on Apple, Spotify, and all the other podcast avenues.
0: And I always love having time to talk with you and we could keep on talking, but for the sake of time, um, (laughs) are there any final thoughts in your mind, anything on your heart, anything you just feel like you want to share before we go?
1: I think... At the end of the day, what the Richmond Racial Equity Essays is becoming an educational product. It, I don't know that I intended it to be that way. I don't know what it was. I was just like called to do this. And so just read through them. I had to sit down and read through them. And I think whoever reads them, you're going to get an education, but you'll get clear on this multifaceted monster that we have inherited. There's 24 essays. So there's 24 different ways in which it is manifested in people's lives that you can read about, which I just think is very interesting and interesting people in Richmond. They also craft solutions. And so you're not left with this. Now I got this 24 headed monster, but it's like, okay, this is what I can do. This is what I can read more about. This is more I can advocate for, this is what I can support. And so I love those three things, right? You'll get some insight into the stories of the people that are doing work around our city. You'll get some stats and facts around like how do these things manifest in our city, but you'll also get some solutions. And so I think just read through them or read one. And as the old folks say, it'll learn you something. (laughs) (laughs) And so I invite everybody as an entryway into kind of understanding race. If that's not your MO, like this is my MO. So I read stuff like this all the time. Read one from a person that, that you may find interesting. And even if you don't agree with it, you'll hear a different perspective on your story. And my wish for everybody in this project is to be open to the stories of people that are different from them, right? I try to force myself to do that as well, because if we just listen to folks that are like us, then we the point of transformation, right? That's and good. as believers, we should always be trying to transform ourselves, trying to transform our society, because transformed people transform people, and they transform places, how do we move in the way of love? Because the ideas that founded our nation, some of them, not all of them, some of them are really awesome ideas. A lot of them weren't rooted in love. So we have to root those things out and be transformed, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Scripture is a way to re- renew our mind, but hearing the stories of other people is also a way to renew our minds and hopefully renew our souls so that we can go out there and renew and transform our society. You will walk, You will
0: One faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. In the intro to the last episode, I shared my process for finding a guest, which is usually God brings somebody to my mind and I take a step of obedience to reach out, sometimes not knowing what it was going to bring. And I recorded this episode knowing that the topic of race is one that many people I know would want to avoid, that many people I know might get mad at me for recording. And the reality is, is that my goal is not to please people or to make people like me with this podcast. This podcast started as a step of obedience and continues to be that. And so when God nudged me to reach out to Ebony and to invite her to share about race, I wanted to take a step of obedience, knowing that some people might love it and some people might hate it. But as I said in this intro, there is no agenda here outside of trying to seek God and what he wanted to do. And what I feel like God's brought about is a practical exercise for some in what it looks like to stay at the table and how healing might come from that. And while this was a practical exercise for some specifically around tension on the topic of race, the act of staying at the table is one that all of us struggle with in some way, shape, or form. There is someone, there is some topic, there is some situation where we do not want to be at the table. And this isn't saying that we must subject ourselves to every tension, every conflict, every conversation, but there are tables that God is inviting us to that we are resisting. And our act of obedience to God is to choose to sit rather than run, is to choose to honor rather than fight. We have heard some amazing stories of what it looks like on an individual level to find healing even when the circumstances don't change. But God has also created us to engage in such a way where the circumstances can often change, but often don't because of us, not him. He has said clearly in his word that he is calling us to unity, but too often the body does not want to be unified, and there were ramifications of that. And as I thought about the ways that what Ebony is sharing could easily be dismissed by people in my life, by people I care about, I couldn't help but think of the times where my trauma was dismissed by people I cared about and how much it wounded me. And my trauma only lasted a few years. But what Ebony shared is centuries in the works. We can choose dismissal or we can choose love. And I know this is a broad sweep of a very nuanced topic, but sometimes we just need to get simple. As my spiritual father, Don Coleman puts it, the call of the Bible is not easy, but it's simple. It is simple. Seek God. Love others. Be in unity. We don't even have to know how to do those things. We merely need to be willing to step towards them. On an individual level, what's particularly hard about this topic is that you can't force somebody to stay at the table. And when they choose to not stay at the table, there could continue to be pain in those wounds. But also on an individual level, there may be a situation in which you're the one not sitting at the table. There may be someone that is longing for you to take a seat and to hear them and to honor them so if you're willing here's the prayer we can pray god is there a table that i'm avoiding sitting at is there someone that is longing for me to listen that i'm avoiding will you give me the strength to see the imago day in the other and to sit to listen and to love pray that and see who god brings to your mind and then are willing, take that bold step of obedience. And as you do, ask yourself, where did you see God? Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash where did you see God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group, and you will love listening to the rest of their music, so check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God?